Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Nick Majuli, the Chief Operating Officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management, creator of the popular finance blog of Dollars and Data, and the author of the book, Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. Nick is what you would call a permabull. He takes a data-driven approach, and we got a fresh perspective on the markets during this time where you hear a lot of doom and gloom. Yes, there will always be tough times. You will hear there are always reasons to sell, but there are also reasons to keep buying for long-term wealth accumulation. I really enjoyed this conversation with Nick, and I think you will too. Nick Majuli, Chief Operating Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management, author of the popular finance blog of dollars and data, and author of the new book, Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. Welcome to the show. So great to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Julie. Appreciate it. Well, of course. Well, before we get into your book, uh, which I read and listened to the audiobook, and I also have the Kindle, uh, so all three versions, I want to talk to you about the publishing uh, business because you put out a tweet recently that you sold 35,000 copies. And um, for folks listening, you do have a, a background in data science and you were kind of providing some insights into like how the publishing business works, a bit of the economics of it. So I was hoping maybe you could kind of shed some light there, any sort of insights that you got from publishing and, um, you know, what, 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 what the 35,000 kind of means in the context of publishing. Well, yeah. So there's a lot of issues around like the publishing data and what counts as a sale, what doesn't count as a sale. For example, that 35,000 is the most liberal way of looking at sales. Like I'm including all formats. So I'm including Kindle, I'm including audiobook. Uh, hardcover paperback. And I'm also including sales internationally, right? So a lot of times someone might talk about their sales or what you see in like a a book scanner with the New York Times uses, they're only going to use US sales. And they're probably only going to use one of the formats, either paperback or hardcover, right? So I think the numbers I included there, like a typical New York Times nonfiction bestseller, sell something like 20,000 or 21,000 copies in a year. Um, but I think that's just paperback, right? That doesn't include all the other things. So it's not really apples to apples. And that's the the tough part about that is like, what what is it, what exactly are people counting and not counting? And so that's really interesting. The other thing too is like, obviously that, that data was really interesting because you can like see, okay, most of the time what happens with the book, it's like it sells very much very quickly, usually in the first few months. And then it kind of is a slow, long tail. And I'm sorry, I'm seeing the same thing with my book, right? That's how most books are. There are exceptions to the rule. I think uh, Morgan Housel, sold like 250,000 copies in his first four months. And now I think it's just kept keeps going up, right? You think it would have stopped already and come down. But his his book is a is a true bestseller of, of a different proportion, right? Very few books uh, get uh, get to sell that much. But it's kind of interesting to kind of see how those, you know, the sales pattern and decay happens over time. So still learning a little bit about it. I mean, there's not a lot of data on this stuff. And you have to kind of find things in obscure blog posts and dig through academic articles and journals and things like that to find information. But it's been interesting just kind of going through the process. Yeah. Well, you should be very proud of 35,000 and um, hopefully continuing to see that um, tick higher. And for folks, I, I do recommend the book. I read it and it is it is extremely useful and it addresses a lot of myths, which we'll certainly get into. But I was also just kind of amazed at like how many books like don't sell, like they maybe sell a couple dozen copies. I think you linked to someone's Twitter thread on this, um, that a lot of books just kind of don't go anywhere. Yeah, that happens. I think that data is a little skewed as well, because it's looking at all books, even books that have been out for a couple of years. So for example, if we look at my I don't I have no idea what my second year sales are going to be, but I I not can't guarantee but it's very likely that I'm going to sell far less in my second year and my third year and my fourth year than I did compared to my first year. Of course, there are exceptions to that rule. But if you look at all books, and you're like, Oh, wow, most books sell less than a dozen copies in a year yet. But some of those books have been out for 20 years. There's not many people buying them after 20 years, right? Unless they're like a classic or something that's like, really within, you know, the cultural zeitgeist in some way, right? So I think there's some skew going on there. I think if you just look at new releases, that's why I really like that New York Times bestseller data. Of course, that is very like, those are like some of the best books out there. So those books are going to be um, skewed in their own way, but at least you kind of get some idea of, you know, how how books are selling and, and whatnot. So I wouldn't say most books sell less than like a dozen copies a year. I think that's not really accurate, like when they first come out. Um, but yeah, I think an author to sell a couple, you know, a thousand copies or something, that's like something to be proud of because it's very tough to do. I, I was lucky because I had an audience, right? I've been writing online for five years, right? Some people ask me how long it took me to write the book. It's like, well, it took me seven months, but I also been using content that I've been putting out for over five years. So it took me a very long time and I got to kind of test my content with, you know, my online audience and then release it to a much larger audience, which is like everyone else who reads books and not blog posts. So it's a very different way of, you know, trying to sell a book. 
Yeah, I love that. And you mentioned like you were already writing for five years and, you know, we, you mentioned Morgan Housel. He's a prolific writer as well. And um, of Dollars and Data, it's an incredible blog. And you started this in like 2017 and you made a commitment. Talk, talk, talk to me about the commitment and how you were able to stick to that through all of these years and, and maybe a bit more about how your writing process has evolved. Kind of give us an insight um, on your own writing journey. Yeah. So when I first started, um, I said, Hey, you know, I made, it was like a new year's resolution and give me a second. Sorry, there's, there's traffic here in New York city. Um, <laughs> it was a new year's resolution. And basically I'm like, I'm going to write one post a week and I'm just going to do that for as long as I can. And now we're a week, like I think 317 now or something, and I'm still doing it. Um, and what I learned about the writing process is just like, I wasn't that good of a writer when I started. My first post was decent. I think the idea was good. Maybe the writing wasn't as good as it could have been, but like my second, third, fourth post weren't that great. They got better over time. And it's really just learning how to write. Like you just spent so much time doing it. You can actually just read my post. You'll see like they get better and better over time, I think generally. Um, and that's just to kind of, it takes time. There's no, there's no other way around it. You've got to put in the reps and right. And so for me, it was like really kind of a journey for me to kind of like learn this new skill. I did it publicly as well. So like, that's, what's also interesting, but it was just fun kind of, you know, going at it week after week. And how, how's the process changed? I think it's always been kind of the same. I usually take like every Sunday or so, and it, it varies every week, but I usually take like a one day off and just do that. So for example, my post coming out tomorrow on, on Tuesday, um, I wrote it, I wrote it yesterday on, on Sunday and just spent like, you know, I think six, seven hours, put it, put together a post and, you know, then it's going to come out. So that's it. And so I just spend the time like collecting articles, things that are useful, maybe making charts, graphs, whatever. And then, you know, putting it together and that's it. Now that I've done it so many times, it's obviously getting easier to do, but it's, you know, it, it's always challenging based on the idea as well. So it's, it's kind of, it's hit and miss. I don't really have a perfect process or anything like that. I kind of just, you know, do what, what comes natural to me. Yeah. I actually don't know the answer to this question that I'm about to ask you, but I had um, Josh Brown on the CEO of Reholt's Wealth Management. And, you know, he's been writing Reform Broker for, gosh, well over a decade at this point. Uh, of mm -hmm. course, uh, Barry Ritholtz, a prolific uh, writer, um, Michael Vatnick. And is that how you got connected with those guys? And it, and it seems to me like, you know, Josh kind of brought up a point was, you know, writing is such an important part of investing. Tell me a bit more about how you kind of got um, connected to those folks through writing. Yeah, so I was writing, as I said, beginning in 2017. I didn't actually meet Josh and Michael until end of 2017. They were having a conference uh, down or up in New York City. Um, and I came out to New York and I said, hey, you know, love to work with you guys, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, they ended up hiring me for my data skills, which is not which is kind of showcased on the blog, but not necessarily for my writing skills. Um, and you know, I've been working with them ever since. And it was just that whole process of just natural discovery on the internet, you know, reading people's blogs, reading people's thoughts. And so it was, it was a perfect fit for us. And it's so funny because everyone writes differently. Like I think Michael and Josh are very similar in how they write. Like they will literally just open up their WordPress and they will just go and they'll write it. Like that's how they write. Like I've literally heard Josh just pounding away. And then I hear, I see the blog post later. And I was like, he does it that quickly. I do not write like that. And so every person's different. And I think for him, it's probably experience. Like he's such a good writer and he's been doing it for so long that he just knows like how to get into that space, get it done and then get out. Me, it takes me much longer, I think, than most people when it comes to writing. Um, just And it is getting, I think, a little easier, but it's still, I think it's still a challenge for me at times. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the book. Um, you have it divided into like two sections. So maybe we'll kind of divide the interview that way. Um, part one focused more on saving and part two focused more on investing. Um, and I think there's a lot that people can learn, uh, whether you're an expert or novice. Uh, so there's, I think there's a lot we can learn in this conversation, but let's kind of just start with, um, like where, where one should even think to start or begin. That's how you kind of open up the book. Let's start there. Yeah. So I have this idea called, uh, saving is for the poor and investing is for the rich. And, and what that means, I mean, remember this is, you know, this is a very relative, this is an absolute a statement and a relative statement. And what I really mean by that is where you focus on in your financial life is going to be dictated on kind of where you're at currently. So I'm going to give two extreme examples and you'll see how kind of how they're connected over time. Extreme example number one, myself when I was 23, you know, I had, you know, about a thousand dollars to my name. I've been working for about six months, saved up about, you know, a thousand bucks in my retirement accounts or whatever. I had spreadsheets of all the stuff I wanted to, you know, uh, do with my investments, all my, you know, I had like ideas of projecting my net worth, all this type of really just, you know, super nerdy stuff, but I only had a thousand dollars to my name. Right. At the same time, I was going out with my friends, you know, going to dinner, you know, getting drinks, shots, Uber home, all that. 
And on my $1,000, let's, let's pretend I got a 10% return. That's 100 bucks, right? I was easily spending that $100 in a single night out going out in San Francisco, right? So I blew my investment returns in like a single night, my whole year's investment returns in a night, right? And so I spent all this time focusing on the wrong thing. I was like looking at these spreadsheets and doing all the stuff. And that was fun in its own right, but it wasn't really useful for, you know, um, my investment or my uh, my financial journey at the time. What I really should have been focusing on is saving money and how can I increase my income and focus on my career. So you can see at one point when I was really young and I didn't have a lot of assets, everything was about saving. And that's kind of how the book starts out, ta starts, start, starts out talking about saving. However, eventually, as you kind of gain more wealth, you can imagine someone basically in retirement, they can't save money anymore, but they have this huge nest egg. Now their career decisions, their saving decisions don't really matter, but you know, tax loss harvesting matters, like rebalancing matters, their asset allocation matters. All those things that didn't matter when they were very young and um, relatively poor, um, all those things like don't matter as much now, right? And so it, it's funny how they change over time. And so if you think about that as like a timeline, I want you to think about like where you focus and how it changes, right? And so when you start your um, your financial journey, you're going to be focusing on saving, focusing on your career, right? And as you kind of get older, you know, your savings will start to increase, your investments will increase as well, right? Along Alongside it. And at some point, you're going to have to care about both. That's like the mid game. I think that's what's the most important. It's kind of like what I'm going through, probably what you're going through, et cetera. Um, and then as you get older, you can care a lot less about saving decisions and almost everything comes down to, you know, how your investments are allocated and how they perform basically. Cause that's, that's what moves the needle, right? Or early in life, everything that moves the needle is your, is your labor, right? It's your earnings from your job. Right. And then later in life, the, what moves the needle is how your investments perform. Right. And so you can see that transition, um, and how that plays out over time. So it's a, yeah. it's a long answer, but that's like an entire, the entire book is built off of that. And then we can just dive into topics within those two pillars of say. Exactly. I was going to just follow up. Like, is there anything that you would have done differently? Like if you could go back to being 23 again, um, anything that you might do differently? Um, I think I just would have, you know, built more skills. It's not that I have like major regrets or anything, but if I could go back, I probably would have learned different types of skills. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time on programming. I probably could have gotten more into that, even been more technical. Um, or maybe I could have just gotten into writing earlier. Who knows? I mean, there's a lot of different ways. I don't know if being more technical would have helped because like even right now, like I feel like my technical skills are are very good for where they're at, but like I'm not at a level where I could go be like a software developer at a tech company. Not even saying I want to do that, but that's just like something like you can always have in your back pocket. Like if I want to go develop an entire website, you know, and you know, run everything through it. Like I, I'm not I'm not a full stack developer. I think it'd be kind of cool to just have that skill in case I ever needed it. And so that's kind of the my thinking there. Yeah. All right. Let's, um, let's start to just dive in uh, more on the themes here. Um, how much should someone save? And uh, what are the kind of myths around how much that figure that you should save? So a lot of personal finance experts, I think, just give like particular numbers like, oh, save 20% or something like that. And I think that those ideas made sense when two things were true. You had like one income earner in the household and incomes were more stable, right? You didn't have side hustles, gigs and all that. That's something where today a lot of people have side hustles, things like that. That wasn't necessarily true, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And I think with one income earner as well, it was a very like things were much more stable or pensions, like everything was kind of taken care of financially. Now there's a lot more, you know, because we have two income earners in the household, that's how most households are today. Um, because of that, like there's a lot more variability. So sticking with very rigid rules is much tougher today than I think it was, you know, you know, 40, 50 years ago. So that's why I think my advice is save what you can. And what that really means is, you know, don't have a fixed savings rate. Like it's going to move around over time. And when you have a lot of extra income coming in, you'll save more. And when you have less, you'll save less. Right. And so I think about it that way because I think it's more realistic and it's, you know, I'm not saying, okay, let's say your savings rate is 20% and you get a, you know, a 30 40% raise, right. Or just a big raise of some sort. Are you going to just spend all that extra money now that you have it? Like, I don't think that necessarily makes sense. I think you should probably be saving more of that, you know, given you've had a raise. Right. But if you just have a fixed savings rule, you're never going to kind of be able to do that. So I think, and especially what if the flip side, imagine you lose your job or something and you, oh, well, you know, I got to, you know, and you get, finally get a new job, maybe it doesn't pay you as well. Now, oh, I have to save 20% of that. What if it's way less on income than what you earned before? I think it's really tough to say, hey, you should, you know, use this one particular rule because it's going to change a lot. So uh, I would say just be more flexible. I think that's the key here. And it's, it's about kind of going through the journey and, and focusing less on the exact particulars and just and focusing on like, you know, what's going to work over the long, the yeah. long haul. Yeah. Like you kind of mentioned, like a lot has certainly changed since like some of these, like, I don't know, personal, this like personal finance advice. that's kind of always been like drilled into us is even um, 
come out? Like, what what do you think are some of like the biggest lies um, in personal finance? If I could pick one, it's that like cutting your spending is the way to build wealth. Now, of course, people listening to this, you're going to know somebody who like spends way too much money, and if they just cut their spending, they could be super rich. That's fine, but that's those people are in the minority. They're an outlier. Most people who are building wealth have high incomes and. That's one of the clearest things in the data, like income, the correlation between income and savings rate is one of the most positively correlated things I've ever seen in the data, right? So those with higher incomes generally have higher savings rate. And this goes back through time. I mean, uh, Emmanuel Sayers and Gabriel Zuckman, they do a lot of wealth and inequality data. They have data going back to 1910 that shows higher wealth is correlated with higher savings rates in every single decade, except 1930, Great Depression. So besides crazy moments like that, if you have a higher income, you generally have a higher savings rate. So the big lie is that, oh, you can cut your spending on your way to get wealth. Now, you can cut spending in the short term. I think over the long run, it's not sustainable. And the only sustainable path is increasing income. And so we need to focus on that. We need to stop shaming people about getting lattes or avocado toast or whatever the new thing is now. And just say like, hey, that's not the reason these people aren't building wealth. It's because they just don't have sufficient income. And so we need to figure out ways to increase their income, pay people more, et cetera. That's really the answer. Yeah. I liked um, your 2X rule. Can you explain that? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of you know spending on, on top of like there's issues with like how we think about saving and spending. I think for those that are doing well, I think there's a lot of spending guilt out there. They feel guilty about spending money. And I think there's ways to get around that that are actually beneficial to you. So the 2X rule is very simply is just if you're going to spend X on something and you feel like it's a splurge, it's a lot of money. Let's say you're going to spend, I don't know, $300 on a nice dinner going out for like, let's say your anniversary, right? Instead of, you know, spending that 300 and feeling guilty, you you save another $300. So $600 in total, 2X. And you take that other 300 and you invest it in income producing assets. You'd buy something like an S&P 500 index fund or I don't know, some real estate REIT or whatever, something. You take that extra money and you invest it. Or you could take that extra $300 and you could donate it. There's a lot of different ways you can use this rule. But the, the idea is to de-guilt the main purchase. So that anniversary dinner, you should not feel guilty about. You should be like, hey, I spent that $300. And yes, that was a splurge, but I also invested in my future at the same time, or I also helped someone else out at the same time. And I think that's a way to get over spending guilt such that you can kind of enjoy your money. I think it just allows you to enjoy your money. And you also know you're investing for your future. So it's like a double whammy. Like you enjoyed the money and you en you're going to enjoy that future money that it grows to, right? So it's like, that's, I like coming up with systems. I mean, not everyone needs that. They're like, oh, I don't have any spending guilt. Then this isn't for you, right? Um, but for some people, they're going to need something like that. They're going to need some sort of tricks or ways or methods of kind of getting over I'm feeling bad about spending money because it's out there. As I said, you know, you owe your, you know, you're peeing away a million dollars when you're buying lattes. That stuff is out there and people hear this all the time. And I think it's not healthy for us. Yeah. We've all heard that one. Like you can save X amount if you don't get that latte, um, but get the latte, uh, but find mm -hmm. uh, ways to produce income. And um, in the book, like now we're going to get to the, like the investing section of the book um, part two, but you talked about how retirement, um, which when we think about the future, like it's like we're saving for or investing for retirement, um, that retirement is about more than money. Can you explain that? Yeah. So I think a lot of times, and this isn't originally my idea. I got this from uh, Ernie Zielinski, but basically uh, as a book called How to Retire Happy, Wild and Free. And the whole book is about retirement, but they never talk about money, which I was like, what? How is this possible? And I read that book and had a big impression on me. But basically, like I think retirement for most people the bigger question you have to ask isn't like, oh, am I going to outlive my money? I think that obviously is important, but I think what's more important is like, what are you going to do with your time? Because there's a lot of people who maybe because of how their life turned out, they end up spending a lot more time at work. Their career is a big part of them. Even when, you know, think about when you go to a party nowadays, you ask someone, hey, you know, where are you from? And then you say, well, what do you do? Right. It's very quickly one of the first questions you ask. It's a big identity for people is like their work, at least in the United States. That's not true the rest of the world. But in the U.S., I notice this a lot in social settings. And because of that, um, it's a big part of, you know, who you are. And so imagine going from that to like, oh, now I'm retired. And this thing that was a huge portion of my life is no longer part of my life. What am I going to do with my time? Now, some people know, oh, I know exactly what I'll do. And that's great. You're going to probably do great in retirement. Other people, I think, are less clear and less sure. And once they get there, 
they hit like an ex- existential crisis where they're just not sure what they're going to do with their time. They can start feeling depressed, et cetera. So I think before you retire, not just having your financial life in order, that's important, but more importantly, I think you need to figure out your social life. What are you going to do with your time? What hobbies, activities, et cetera, figure that piece out where you're going to live all that, because I think that is going to be far more important than anything you do um, financially. Yeah. It makes me think of um, the fire movement, uh, financial financial independence, retire early. What are your what are your thoughts on fire? Do you think it's overrated? I think there's I think for some people it's it's a very good choice and it works really well for them. I think for others they get seduced by the unlimited freedom to do whatever and then they spend all this time saving all this money, they forgo life experiences, etc. and then they get to that point where they have all the money and they have now the freedom they want but then they don't know what to do with it. And so it's like one of those, you know, I can't remember. I can't remember where I've heard this quote or something. It's like it's like a dog chasing, you know, a, a frisbee or something. Once they get it, they don't know what to do with it exactly. Or, you know, or I don't know if it was a, or a dog chasing something. I can't. I can't remember the exact analogy, but it's this whole point of like, what, what are you going to do with what's uh, what you get, what you want? You know, what are you going to do what, um, once you get there, right? And that's the question. And so I'm not exactly sure um, the answer to that, but I think it's like something you have to figure out on your own, right? I think I, this kind of goes back to like Greek philosophy. It's like something that's been, you know, thousands of years old, like, you know, know thyself. That's the most important question we have to ask. It's like, what do you really want out of life? Once you can solve for that, then you can say, is fire the right way to get there? Or is this other way the right way to get there? For example, I don't personally try to follow fire um, because I enjoy working. I enjoy working. And even if I'm not with Ritholtz, I'd be with someone else, but I really enjoy the the company I'm at and what I'm doing now. And, you know, and I want to keep doing that. I don't see myself you know, stopping from working anytime soon, or even when I'm 65, of course, I may feel differently when I'm 65. But, you know, as far as I know, I want to keep working for as long as I can and just kind of enjoy the process. And that's the whole thing is like, for me, just to enjoy the journey, I think it's more important than like, trying to get to some number and then saying, hey, screw all you guys, I don't want to do anything like that. Yeah. Um, another one of your rules, I like how you like kind of frame them up as rules. Um, think like an owner and buy income producing assets. Where would one even begin? So I think, I mean, people talk a lot about capitalism. I think there's a lot of critiques of capitalism, and some of them are very fair. I'm not going to, you know, capitalism is very good at creating a lot of wealth. It's not very good at necessarily distributing that wealth um, evenly or in any way that's as equitable as we could want it. However, you know, what's the point of capitalism? It's to own capital, right? And I think a lot of people forget that or they don't even really realize that, right? It's like, and the, the example I give in the book is like, I ask, you know, Who's the richest person in NFL history? You know, who's like on the richest? And we'd be like, is it John Madden? Is it Tom Brady? Is it Peyton Manning or something? And the answer is no, it's Jerry Richardson. You probably don't even know who that is, but he was in the NFL and he, I think he went to a championship once as before they had the Super Bowls, but he got rich not because of the NFL. He got rich because he started the, you know, Hardy's franchises and he bought a bunch of these, like, you know, Carl's Jr. slash Hardy's, you know, the little, you know, gold star fast food. Um, he had a bunch of those franchises and got rich off of that. And then he, I think he ended up buying the Carolina Panthers. And he got rich not off of his labor income, but based off of his ca- capital ownership, right? And you see a lot of people, you know, how they gain a ton of wealth. It's not from their labor and what they create necessarily. It's from their business dealings, right? You think about like Dr. Dre, you know, he technically, I think, was on the bill- he's on the billionaire list because of Beats headphones, right? Something he owned a business. It wasn't because of his great records, right? So you have to realize like, when you're in a capitalist society, owning capital is the way to wealth. And so that's kind of the main rule there. Like think like an owner and own income producing assets. Yeah. Um, I liked that story about the, uh, about Jerry Richardson and, and the Hardys uh, in, in the book. I did not know that either. So it was fun to learn. Um, you also, one of your rules is don't buy individual stocks. And you also share a story about a friend who got crushed on GameStop of, of all stocks. So talk to me about that rule. Yeah. So for the record, I think it just the the story I used about GameStop is not like, oh, if you bought GameStop, you're that's the reason why you shouldn't buy individual stocks because of something would happen there. I just thought it was an interesting story because it all happened within the course of two hours, like in a two hour setting. You got all the emotions that you would get over what normally would take like a lifetime because the the, the stock was so volatile on that particular day. So but the, the main reason I think people shouldn't own individual stocks, there's two core arguments. The first argument is called the performance argument, which is basically like, oh, if you buy individual stocks, you're unlikely to beat an index fund like the S&P 500, so you shouldn't even do it, right? If 70 to 80% of active managers can't do it over a you know one, three, five-year period, then you shouldn't even waste time doing it either, right? That's the original argument that's put forth, and I think it's great, but I think the better argument, 
is what I call the existential argument. And it's simply, how do you know if you're good at picking stocks? You know, with a lot of things in life, there's very short feedback loops. You know, you can see like, for example, if myself and LeBron James went onto the basketball court and LeBron, let's say LeBron James wasn't famous, but he still had his talent. Within five minutes, anyone with a brain could see that like LeBron James is better than me, right? You could just easily tell that he has skill and talent and I don't, right? And the reason is the feedback loop in basketball is small, right? The, you shoot the basket, either goes in or it doesn't, right? You create the block or it doesn't, right? You juke someone or you don't. The problem with in investing, that feedback loop is massive, right? I can make a decision now that doesn't pay off for three years, five years, 10 years, et cetera, right? And so because the the point between when the decision is made and when you get the feedback from that decision is so large and there's so much luck involved in that, it's really tough to know if you're good. And so I'm not saying there isn't skill in the investment industry. I think about 10% of people that do this are can actually beat the market, but the other 90% can't. And the problem is, it takes a long time before you know if you're in that 10%. You know, I think it's really tough to know. Hmm. And so that's why I kind of tell people, hey, don't buy individual stocks. If you want to do it for fun and do it with a small portion of your wealth, let's say you have like, I don't know, 90% of your wealth and like diversified income producing assets and you want to play with the other 10% or play with 5% or something, that's fine. Have at it. Scratch that itch. I think most people should not be doing that though. I think, you know, most people should be mostly just in income producing assets because I think they're going to underperform over the long run, right? And obviously those people, and here's what's great about this argument, because if you're on the fence and you're unsure whether to pick individual stocks, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. The people that really love this stuff, I could say this till I'm blue in the face, they're going to still pick individual stocks no matter what, right? Like they, they love this, right? And I can't stop them. So I think that's why this is an interesting argument because- you know, the whole point is like, how do you know if you're good? They're like, I don't care. I love this thing. I'm going to keep doing it until I prove I'm good or just because I love doing it. And so for those people have at it, but I think most people shouldn't be doing it. Wait, let's explore this a little bit further. Like how much luck is involved in this? And do you, th do you think the folks who are good, like, do they know they're good or like, or I, I would just like want to hear a bit more because you mentioned like that 10% that probably are good at it. And then the rest that are just lucky, like how does one even discern if they're good versus lucky? Well, that's a great question, but let's just pretend, I mean, let's, let's make this a little bit simpler. Let's say 10% of, of people have positive talent. We know with, with certainty, let's say 10% are actually very bad at this and they know they're bad at it. We put them there. That means you have a middle 80%, four out of five people that don't know. And they're going to be kind of unsure for some amount of time. Let's say maybe one to three years, maybe 10 years. I, mean, I think statistically to prove it, I think you need 10 years of trading data and you need like the problem is any one, all you need is one big hit and it overwhelms the rest of the portfolio. This is kind of my problem with VC. It's like all you need is like one Uber, right? And it doesn't matter how, if you struck out on every other thing. You can literally be a negative value you know, VC, but if you just had one Uber, you would have made a bunch of money, right? And your average return would have been massive. So because there's so much luck, I think there's even more luck in that market than there is in public um, equity investing. So because of that, like I'm like, how can you like, I don't know how VCs get up in the morning, look at themselves in the mirror and think and and know they're adding value. Of course, there are some that have been in there for forever and done it for so long and they clearly have added value. But for so many VCs, like, how do you know? You don't. You cannot statistically prove it. Like, at least, you know, when I'm doing stuff with data science, I know the chart didn't just happen by luck. I had to create the chart. I had to manipulate the data. Right? Like, I know that's like, I, you know, a computer programmer knows they're adding value because they're creating something, right? Like, it can't just by chance your your program's going to compile and create this this result you want, right? It's not going to happen by luck. You're going to going to happen through skill. So, I don't know how VCs do it. I don't know how you know stock pickers do it. But for those that they just have to love it, I think that's really what it comes down to. At the end of the end of the day, you just you ignore that part of it and just say, "Hey, I love it," and you kind of see what happens. I think that's the only way to do it. Yeah. So, like, is your um your your recommendation would be like to do more of like the low cost um index fund investing, like what Warren Buffett often says. Yeah, Warren Buffett, Jack Bogle, all those yeah. people. I'm generally a, a fan of low-cost funds, passive indexing for the bulk of your portfolio. I'm not saying you can't do anything active. I just think if you're going to do something active, it's got to be a smaller portion, right? I don't want you having, you know, you know, 100% in trend following or 100% in some particular um, high-risk asset class. I think there there is value to some of that stuff, but you you need to kind of keep it, you know, for risk management purposes. I think a little bit smaller portion of your portfolio because if it goes south, it can go very south. Got it. How about um, your views on uh, dollar cost averaging versus like putting like a lump sum in the market? Share with me your views there. So 
I don't like the term dollar cost averaging because it has two definitions. So let me just quickly say for the, for everyone in the audience, the dollar cost averaging you just referred to is like when you have a bunch of money and you slowly kind of like average into the market, right? The original um, definition for dollar cost averaging, which comes from you know Benjamin Graham securities analysis, um, the intelligent investor, Warren Buffett's mentor. Um, that original definition is just buying over time. Like every time, for example, every time you get money in your 401k and you just invest right away, like that is dollar cost averaging technically. But that's very different from the definition you just brought up, which is like, hey, I have a bunch of money and I want to slowly get into the market versus putting in a lump sum investment. And those are very different things. So generally, the, the rule I follow is like the sooner the better. On, like on average, that's been true. Like if you, for example, over a 12 month period into US stocks, if you put in all that money right away, let's say you had a, you know, let's say $120,000 and you put in all that right now versus putting in 10,000 a month for the next 12 months, you're generally um, going to outperform by about 5% on average by, by going sooner because the market tends to go up over time. Um, so that's my take on it. It's like generally you should go sooner. And someone will be like, Nick, what about risk? Well, if you're worried about risk, maybe you should just go sooner, but into a you know less risky portfolio. So instead of going all into 100% stocks, maybe you go into all into 80-20 portfolio and you slow versus slowly wading into 100% stock portfolio. Um, that's just different ways to look at it, but. Um, you know, we, we can get into particulars if you have more questions on that. So like if I get like a lump sum of, I don't know what, what would happen if I got my lump sum versus it's like kind of like how I do it. Like right now, I'll tell you how I do it. I just do like every week I have like a recurring investment that goes into the market. Um, but if I had that lump sum, it would be better for me to like put it in at, versus like doing it in like little bits over time. Yeah, exactly. And so most, I mean, everyone, technically we're all lump sum investment investing. It's just, we have smaller lump sums, right? It's like you have this little lump sums from your paycheck every week or whatever it is, right? Little relative to like selling a business or getting a huge inheritance, right? Like relative to your total assets, right? Um, and so most people like we're all lump sum investors. Like it's something like just, we just do them in small lump sums all the time. Right. And so the question is like, oh, once that amount gets very large, people get very worried. Right. And I understand that worry. Like what if I put it all in the market crashes? That's a fair worry. You know, if you really are that worried about that, then I say de-risk. Put it all in now, but put it into a far less risky portfolio. I think the risk is what's scaring you. It has nothing to do with the timing. It's the risk that's scaring you, right? And so you, you get around that by kind of putting in, as I said, into 80-20 instead of 100% stocks or whatever. Probably a good time, too, to have this conversation because maybe, I mean, I would imagine, like, maybe people are worried. They are, um, you know, this market's been incredibly um, turbulent lately. Talk to me about um, your views of investing during these kinds of periods and staying calm. Yeah, I think for me, I just study history. I think the more you understand history, the more you kind of see that things repeat themselves. For example, um, I just took a trip with my sister. We did our first siblings trip ever. We're, you know, we're Italian. Our last name is Majuli, but no one in our family has been to Italy in 80 years. So we just went back for the first time. We were in Florence and I found out in Florence, they have these little thing called wine windows, these little tiny little compartments that during the, the Black Death, the Black Plague, um, uh, Florentine shopkeepers would sell things through these little windows because they didn't want to come face to face with people. It was a way to prevent the spread of the Black Plague. And I don't know if you guys know much about the history in Italy, but certain towns were wiped out, like literally 66% of the population was killed by the Black Plague. It was like very bad in certain areas. So this was definitely needed. So these wine windows, you know, they were used and then they stopped being used at some point because, you know, Black Plague went away, etc. During COVID, they started reusing these wine windows again. And so it's just funny how history repeats itself, not exactly in the same way, not, you know, it rhymes that they say it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so I think the more you see that, and the more you realize, like, this is just all these weird similarities over time, you start to kind of realize like, hey, you know, that's why I don't panic. Like even right now, I just ran some stats. I posted a tweet recently that was like the return from 1900 to November 1922 is nearly identical to the return from 2000 to about right now, which is we're almost November 2022, right? So I'm not saying that the path was very different. The path from 1900 to 1922 is very different than the path from the year 2000 to 2022. But it's very odd that like the real return over those two periods when including dividends for US stocks is nearly identical. One was like up 128%, one was up 124% or something. It's like, these are separated by a century and the, the returns are nearly identical. And so it goes to say like, they're very different market regimes, very different things. I'm not saying that that means, oh, we're about to enter a roaring 20s. No, that's silly. I'm just saying, think about that. Like we just came off like the most 
the highest valuation ever in 2000. Like we went through a bunch of other stuff since then. And we still have the same total return as whatever was happening in 1900 to 1922, right? Like it's just there. I see way too many similarities and things like that. And it's very easy to get caught up in the news cycle. And the more you kind of zoom out and just be like, that's not what tends to happen. Like these markets tend to converge just on long run average. We don't know why, but that's what's happening. It's what's been happening. And so I think it's going to continue. Obviously, it won't continue forever, but I think it can continue longer than we think. So you're a bit more, I'm hearing you're a bit more optimistic. Oh, yeah. I'm always optimistic, right? Like I would say I'm a permable, of course. Like there are times when it doesn't look good. And even right now, like things don't look great. I'm not going to lie. I don't think we're going to be seeing all time highs in the next year or anything like that. But we go through periods like this. We go through lost decades, right? Went 2000, 2009. We just had that a lost decade. Went through the, the 70s were a lost decade. I think most of the 30s were a lost decade, right? So these kind of things happen. This may be one of them. I don't know. I'm not trying to claim one way or another. But I'm also not trying to say like, oh, give up hope and never invest again. Because if you do that, like you'll never earn any money. You'll never kind of grow your wealth and so like the point you like you have to kind of invest what are your options sit in cash and get eaten away by inflation like you don't really have options you know there's not i'm not saying that there's no other options but there's not great options so like investing is the way to go yeah um you you had this quote i'll read it um you said this was like your favorite investing quote and i'll let you like expand upon it but uh, i think it was from jeremy siegel i didn't write down i think it was jeremy Mm -hmm. siegel fear has a greater grasp on human action than does the impressive weight of historical evidence i think i got that right from the book yes that is correct it's my favorite investment quote i think it kind of gets back what i was saying like history and evidence and people don't look at that they'll say oh this time is different this time is different and like you know of course every time is always different but there's just so much similarities over time people behave in so many similar ways right it's like our evolution hasn't caught up with you know, like financial markets have evolved more quickly than our evolution has. And so you're seeing similar things today as you saw in the early 1900s. You're seeing in the 1800s, the 1700s in terms of how people behave, right? It's like, it's the same thing over and over. And yet we forget because we haven't experienced it personally. Like we don't, we don't know what it's like to go through a ton of market crashes, right? But you can go through history and you can see them, right? You can see that like this type of stuff happened before. We had high inflation and a market crash at the same time. We're experiencing like a 1973, 1974 moment right now. And obviously, that things are very different than they were then, but there's a lot of similarities, high inflation, and we have a market crash. That's really bad. You know, we're down 34% or let's say 24% plus about, you know, 8% inflation. We're down about 32% real right now. And guess what? In 1974, the market went down about 34% real. It's like a very similar thing, even though the market is very different. So I just try to like remind people like, look at the evidence, look at the course of history. Do I think the the US economy is going to just end and nothing's going to happen anymore? Even if that happens, what does it matter with your investment portfolio? Like you have much bigger problems than your retirement account, if I'm being honest. And I don't think we're going to some sort of apocalyptic end stage. And so if that's not the case, then keep investing, keep buying, right? It's the, it's the point of the book. Yeah. I was just speaking of like 401k. I did check mine. It's pretty brutal. And it was on, if you look, you're in New York. Are you in New York? Um, because yes, like New York the, the, the cover of the New York Post today was we're recording was literally about the 401k is just getting hammered. Um, I won't tell you how bad mine's down, but it's, it's pretty bad. Um, you also have this rule that market crashes are usually buying opportunities. Like, how do you know when it's a buying opportunity? How do you kind of assess that? I mean, I've done some analysis on this is outside of the book, but just kind of like digging into this uh, more deeply. And like, I generally think they're buying opportunities when they're the most severe. So like, if you actually look, um, since 1926 in us stocks, um, the only time there's a really a like when long term return, when the returns of the next one, three or five years were elevated after like a crash was only after the crash was like greater than 40 percent. Once stocks are down 40 percent, like at least throughout history, that was a time to buy for sure, because the the annualized returns from that period shoot up way higher than throughout all the other periods. Right. Once you're down 20 percent. It could be a buying opportunity, but that could just be the beginning of a much bigger decline, right? So you think those all those things average out over time, right? So like sometimes it's down 20% and then it shoots back up. Sometimes it goes down 20 and then it goes down 40 or 50, et cetera, right? So I think the the main takeaway here is like, you know, there are cases where it's buying opportunities. And like, I'm not saying to save up cash and wait for these because they're so rare. They don't happen that often, right? Like, let's think about like 50% crashes. We have one in 08. The last one before that was what, 74. And then the last one before that, I guess, I guess, no, I'm sorry, 08, 2074, and then, you know, the Great Depression. So we had four in roughly like the last century, you know, four of those types, right? And so 
Maybe there's going to be a fifth one. Who knows before, you know, 1929. So, or before 2029, right? So there's possibly that we're going to have five 50% crashes in a century, right? But that they're so rare that like you shouldn't, you can't wait for them. You shouldn't sit around waiting for them. But if you happen to have cash, like you sold a business, have an inheritance or something, and you're in one of these periods, you know, back up the truck and, and, and buy. That's, that's what generally that's proven to work out. Of course, there are exceptions to that rule. Not every dip is going to come back. You can think about Russia, right? Russia was down 80% in a month earlier this year. You know, I don't think that's something where you, oh, buy the dip, it's all going to recover. Like, I think it's very different in that case because of the actions that their government is taking. But, you know, I think most developed countries do tend to build wealth over time. And that's the thing to focus on. So you shouldn't wait to buy the dip. No. Holding cash and waiting is you're just going to lose out relative to buying uh, sooner in time. And you can think about this. Like, imagine a, a system that's kind of slowly going up over time and yes, does dip periodically. You might buy that dip, but that dip's going to be higher than where you could have bought originally, right? That's the whole key. It's like the dips happen, but the big dips, the the ones where you're really profitable are the big dips. And they're so rare that you just, they're hard to find and they're hard to take advantage of, Right. For example, yeah, I wrote. I actually wrote a blog post called "Just Keep Buying," which kind of became the intro chapter to the book in 2017. I remember some people saying, "But valuations too high, Nick. You can't just keep buying." Back in 2017, right? They said you can't keep doing this. All those people complaining, even if they had held cash from 2017, held cash, held cash, held cash all these years. March 2020 comes around. They wait till the bottom. They perfectly time it. They get it on March 23rd, 2020, the exact bottom, perfect timing. Even if they had bought on that day. They would still buy at prices 7% higher than they could have gotten in 2017. So I'm not saying that that timing skill wasn't valuable. It's incredibly valuable. But A, you're never going to be able to time it that perfectly. You're never going to get that lucky. Wait five years for, or sorry, three, three and a half years for a crash or something. No, it's just not going to happen. However, what I'm showing is like even someone who perfectly timed it, they still probably overpaid relative to what they could have gotten originally. And so that kind of illustrates this point in an extreme way. Yeah, it kind of ties back to like when we were talking about luck, like, You'd have to be extremely lucky to be able to perfectly uh, time that. Um, you also have this rule, um, don't max out your 401k without considerable thought. I think you shared in the book um, about some lessons or mistakes you made there. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think most personal finance experts just say, hey, max your 401k, you know, and like 10 out of 10 would recommend that. And so I'm like, okay, I actually started digging into the numbers. And I don't think the benefits are as large as people think they are. So I basically was shown, I ran a simulation of imagine putting money in your 401k versus having that money outside of the 401k and having a taxable account. That's like what's well managed, right? And low in low uh, cost funds. If you were to do that, you, you know, the, the 401k is going to give you about 0.7% a year in additional return in terms of tax benefits over the long haul, right? If you stay in the 401k over a long period of time. Um, the problem is there's also some fees in your 401k, not just the fund fees, but there's fees associated with having the 401k, et cetera, that's not in something like an IRA or like in a taxable account, right? So because of that, you know, because you're paying those extra fees, like let's say the, and the average all-in 401k fee um, in the U.S., for a plan is like 40 to 50, you know, basis points. So 0.4 to 0.5%. So if you have a, you know, 0.7% is the benefit and then you take out 0.4%, right? It's like you have 0.3% is your annual extra return, which is not that high. And that money's like locked away forever and you can't touch it. Now I understand, you know, for some people that's, that's a feature. We want to lock the way money so they can't touch it and spend it and all that. I get that. If you have trouble with discipline in like your brokerage account, you always are tempted to pull that money out and spend it, then yes, you should max out your 401k under every circumstance. But for people who are more disciplined and don't need to like worry about like, oh my gosh, I have brokerage money. I'm just going to sell it all and just spend it all. Like if you can like keep a brokerage account, keep money outside of your retirement accounts and not spend it all and actually invest it, then I think there are some cases to be made um, for not maxing and kind of having a little bit more flexibility on the outside. And the only reason I brought this up, I'm not saying that for every person, every time you shouldn't max. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's just that we need to really think about this a little bit more. And I think we need to have a more open discussion about it because if every single personal finance expert basically says max out your 401k, then I think there's probably something wrong there. And there's probably a reason why, you know, people are saying that and they don't, they haven't really dug into the numbers. And I've actually dug into the numbers. I'm saying, Hey, I don't know if that necessarily makes sense. And here's why. Yeah. I remember like being in my early twenties and like first getting the option to like even have a 401k. And I was kind of like, mm -hmm. no, I feel like no one talked about this when I was in college. I don't remember this being talked about when I was in high school. Like, I mean, maybe through the process of writing this book, like what have you kind of learned about like financial, edu the state of like financial education 
in general and like what could be done to make it better? I mean, I think we should be talking a little bit more about that type of stuff, like, you know, how to talk about 401ks, talking about investment options, all that type of stuff. I think that's all very important. Um, I think we also have to kind of like expose people to like more ways of thinking about this. I think the most important thing for most people, though, if I'm being honest, is income in their career. I think that's going to trump everything else, because if you don't have money to put into the account, it doesn't matter, you know, if you know a bunch about 401ks, or you know a bunch about tax loss harvesting or, you know, rebalancing or asset allocation. If you don't have money, it's not going to help. Right. So the core issue is like income and how do we get people to like increase their income opportunities and how do we get people more skills that can help them um, in the in the labor market? I think that's far more important is helping people through that process versus like, oh, I can give you every tool in the investment handbook. But if you can't make money, it just, it's not useful for you. Right. Because that's that's where you're really going to use it. Yeah. Um, you also write in the book that basically no matter what, like you'll never feel rich. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so the example I used in the book, um, Lloyd Blankfein, who's the ex-CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, was interviewed, and he's a billionaire, by the way. And in the interview, uh, they said, are you are you rich? And he said, no, I'm not rich. I'm just well-to-do. This person's a billionaire, right? And why, how did he justify it? He was basically saying, like, well, you know, think about the people that Lloyd Blankfein hangs out with. He hangs out with people like Jeff Bezos, David Geffen, people who have, you know, 10, 100 times his wealth, if not more, Right. And so when he's hanging out with all these people, he doesn't feel rich relative to them, right? And I, I understand that. Imagine every party you walk into, every person you know it has 10x your wealth. It's a little little wild, right? But you know, but relative to the average person, he's very wealthy, right? Now, I actually looked at some data on like global wealth statistics. And if you have a hundred thousand dollars, you're in the top 10% of uh, wealth in the, in the world and global wealth, right? So if you have a hundred thousand dollars us you're in the top 10%, I would consider that rich. If you're in the top 10%, I would consider you to be rich in some terms, right? Now you might say, Nick, a hundred thousand dollars is not rich, right? Like you can't compare me to some person, you know, in the developing world, who's maybe a farmer or somewhere like that's not fair. Now I, I, I agree with you, but at the same time, like Lloyd Blankfein is making that same argument when we compare when we compare him to us like he says like you can't compare me to normal people right you can't compare me to the nick majulis of the world right you have to compare me to like the jeff bezos and the david geffens and the the reason i talk about this is because that that way of like relative comparison that's how people's minds work and right so you're never going to feel rich because if you keep kind of, you know, as you start to gain wealth and you start hanging out with possibly different people in different social circles, you start, you know, interacting with, you know, let's say you buy a home in a nicer area um, so your kids can go to a better school. As you start doing that, you're going to start hanging out with people with more wealth. And then you're going to be like, wow, I'm not rich relative to them. Right. And then even if you go to a better area there, you're not going to be rich relative to someone else. And then it never ends. Right. There's always someone you can point to that's wealthier. Right. And because of that, it's really tough to like feel rich. And so, I think what you have to do is like kind of do it based on like some sort of absolute measure. Like I say, in this case, like $100,000, like global wealth. Some people wouldn't like that. Another way to think about it is like think about how how your life could have turned out like in in a with reasonable expectation and say like, am I above or below that? Like, am I above where I expected to be or where I could have been, you know, in a in, you know, like the imagine you ran your life 10,000 times. Like where how, how are you doing relative to those 10,000 simulations? And that's kind of how you determine if you're rich. That's another way. Of, it's it's not easy to do, but just, you have to kind of think through those types of thought experiments. That's the only way to kind of get over that and like feel like you're rich, even if you're not technically rich based on like your local geography. Yeah, it's it's like fascinating kind of like glimpse into like human psychology too of like looking at it like relatively speaking and also probably ties into like, you know, happiness uh, being another uh, area. Um I liked your chapter on like the most important asset and it's like, it's, it's not what you might think. So explain what the most important asset is and why you'll never get any more of it. Your most important asset is your time bar none. And I think that's why I started the book out by telling you where to focus because you only have so much time. It's the one, you know, limited resource that, and everyone has the same, you know, has the same you know, limited resource, all else equal. Right. And obviously we lose it over time. Like even right now, like, you know, an expectation I have in theory, more time than someone who's 65, right. All else equal. Right. So when you think about that, that's why I'm like, I'm really focused on like, okay, where are you spending your time? 
and why that's so important because you're never going to get any more of it, right? So how you spend that time is is going to play out and compound out over many, many years. So getting those decisions right early in terms of like, oh, I got on the right career so I could save more money, so I could invest, et cetera, that's going to help you a lot more um, than spending a ton of time getting into the weeds on all these investment details when you don't have any money to invest, for example. Yeah. You also wrote about, um, I liked this this line from you, um, and I think it ties back to time as well, but we begin our lives as growth stocks and end our lives as value stocks. And you kind of talk about like your 23-year-old self and the goals you had set, not even not meet, like you were very open about um, that you didn't necessarily meet those goals. Can you kind of elaborate on this kind of notion of beginning your life as a growth stock and ending it as a value stock? Yeah. So there was some happiness research that showed that like people, especially in the early twenties, like they kind of, you know, project out what their life's going to be like when they're 30, 40, et cetera. And they generally project pretty high, like they're very high aspirations. And by the time they get there, they realize they didn't make those aspirations. And so they have this, like, that's where like kind of the midlife crisis happens, right? It's like people are realizing like, oh, I thought I was gonna be married and have kids and have this huge house and all these things that people care about when they're early 20s, whatever. And if everything doesn't pan out the way they want it, they end up like feeling bad about it, right? So they we start as like growth stocks. We have high expectations just like a growth stock does, right? And so that's always what happens. Most growth stocks don't end up living up to their expectations. Most of them just end up, you know, dying out or, or in some way, like they, they don't end up living up to those expectations and they just end up being a, a more normal business at some point, right? But then what happens is we start to beat down and we start to beat ourselves down pretty badly, like in the middle age. And we expect like life's not going to get better. But then there's all these upsides surprises. And that's kind of what a value stock is, right? We start to realize like later in life, like, oh, having kids and, and, you know, grandkids, all those types of things end up bringing more joy than we could have imagined, you know, from that point in time. And so that's where we're like value stocks because value stocks are beaten down badly. And then any sort of upside surprises end up raising their prices. And that's how they tend to outperform over time, at least historically. So I think it's a cool way to look at it. And yeah, when I was 23 years old, you know, my goal was to like have half a million bucks by the time I was 30. And by the way, I'm 32 now. Um, and I wanted to have half a million dollars by the time I'm 30 because Warren Buffett had a million by the time he was age 30. Now, remember, that's not even just for inflation. If you include inflation, Warren Buffett had like 9 million bucks, right? And so I was like, okay, I'm going to not just for inflation and I'm going to cut the goal in half. And I want to be like half of what Warren Buffett had pre, you know, no inflation adjustment. And I didn't even make that. I was, I was short on that. And so even though I've been working hard and trying to do all these things, um, I didn't make it. And so it's one of those things where like, sometimes that happens, you're going to, you know, try your best and you won't necessarily make it to a goal, but that's okay. And life goes on. And there's other things that I had in my life that I didn't even anticipate having, right? like blogging, writing, all that stuff, which has been, uh, um, more valuable than just money. And so you have to really kind of think about, you know, judge yourself in, in much more holistic picture. And you might realize that there's a lot more to life than just like particular goals that you had set when you were in your early twenties. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more to life as you put it. Um, I want to pass it back to you because I, I would love for you to like leave some parting thoughts for the folks and also like let them know where they can find you or learn more, read, read your blog, pick up your book, uh, those sorts of things. Any parting thoughts for the folks listening? Yeah. So thank you for your time. Appreciate it. As I said, it's like, you know, the most important thing um, in terms of, you know, where to find me, I'm on Twitter uh, at dollars and data. You can find me at my blog of dollars and data.com. And then you can find my book on Amazon. Just search, uh, just keep buying. Nick Majuli, Chief Operating Officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management, author of the finance blog of Dollars and Data and the new book, Just Keep Buying. I thank you so much for being generous with your time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Julie. Appreciate it.